Welcome to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast with Sakar Kali. During this program, you will hear guest experts sharing their experiences, best practices, and market insights. We discuss investing in multifamily apartment complexes and how a busy professional can passively invest hassle-free in various opportunities. Your host, Sakar Kali, owns millions of dollars of assets and has done thousands of value-add projects over 20 years now. So listen in for insights. Here's your host, Sakar Kali. Welcome to another edition of Premium Cashflow Podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Ken Holman with Overland Group. Welcome to the show, Ken. I, I greatly appreciate it, and it is an honor to host you today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, great to get acquainted with you and excited for the opportunity. Uh, it is an honor, uh, Ken, uh, for folks who a um, uh, little bit of the background with Ken. Uh, Ken has had a distinguished, illustrious career. Uh, he obtained his real estate uh, agent's license way back in 1972, and then he was a broker by 1975. Over the years, he has brokered, developed, constructed, and owned well over $500 million worth of assets, which have included apartments, condos, uh, industrial properties, self-storage units. Uh, they have been into office buildings, golf course, medical, hotels, uh, fast food restaurants, uh, and other types of commercial properties as well. Uh, presently, Mr. Holman is the manager of several uh, limited liability companies and also an investment partner and advisor to several investors and numerous other real estate ventures. And I'm sure this bio is far, far shorter than the number of things, Ken, you have done. Um, as I said at the top of the show, it is an absolute pleasure and a delight to you know uh, listen to your experience, your advice, and uh, it is a sheer honor. So thank you for taking time today. Oh, you're welcome. Uh, so Ken, uh, in your words, uh, maybe give us a brief background as to maybe perhaps how you got started and the number of uh, you know sort of uh, directions that you you have taken your company in is is surely uh, uh, you know. Uh, jaw-dropping for sure. Uh, take it away, please. <laughs> well, I don't, uh, uh, my beginnings were probably similar to several others, but uh, when I was uh, attending uh, Brigham Young University and getting a degree in accounting, I had an uncle in the business that uh, said, you ought to come and get your real estate license. So while I was in college, I uh, got my real estate license and was able to pay for uh, part of my college uh, selling real estate right from the very beginning. And then I just moved from uh, a degree in accounting to an MBA at the University of Utah. So I'm not a Utah native, but uh, almost claimed to be that because I've <laughs> lived here 45 years now. So, sure. mm -hmm. but, uh, and then I, I'm from originally from Idaho and I went to uh, law school up at the University of Idaho. Mm -hmm. uh, great experience. So, but uh, found that uh, my career is in real estate has been uh, a really rewarding and fun experience for me. So, I understand that uh, that uh, I got my real estate broker's license the year you were born. 
<laughs> that that makes me feel a little old, Sakar. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean the the experience and the number of things that you have done, Ken is it's an honor to you know interview you and uh, kind of you know delve into your experience for sure. Yeah. Uh, so Ken, maybe get us started about um, you know early parts of your career as to uh, you know perhaps how you kind of came to the construction side of things, uh, perhaps or I don't know if you did, uh, you know, uh, obviously through real estate sales and things. Uh, what was that your early uh, career like? Yeah, so uh, after I got out of, uh, after I graduated with uh, all these degrees and things that I, uh, I obtained, then uh, I went to work for a financial planning firm uh, back in the 70s. And uh, uh, back in those days, pre-1986 Tax Reform Act, mm -hmm. uh, we were in a position where we were able to work with a lot of wealthy individuals uh, and real estate was a big part of their portfolio because it saved them a lot of money on taxes. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I had opportunity to begin almost uh, the beginning of my career in a, with a syndication company. Mm -hmm. and uh, working with investors and things like that. And, and they, uh, they put me over uh, the uh, management of all of their portfolio. And mm -hmm. so I had opportunity to uh, manage 5,000 units in five different states. So that gave me a really good background in terms of understanding the business, especially the apartment business. Mm -hmm. back then. Mm -hmm. and uh, some commercial, but mainly apartments. I see. So I see. that's that's mm -hmm. how I got started. And then I decided uh, after I'd worked for them to have, for five years that uh, I decided I wanted to try it on my own. So I, uh, I, uh, I resigned from the company, mm -hmm. uh, went out and bought a new suit, <laughs> rented some, leased some space in an office building and thought, okay, now what do I do? And so that was a, kind of a humble beginning, but I was really excited to have that opportunity. And uh, they had put me over the kind of the uh, acquisition side of the company in terms of evaluating projects and analyzing them. So I felt like I had a pretty good background at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, I... Uh, created this company called Overland. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, originally, it was a management and a real estate brokerage company, and we began there. And then over the course of a, a lifetime, a career, mm -hmm. uh, we added pieces to that puzzle. And uh, sure. the, uh, so we created a development company. We split the management, the brokerage side of the business. And uh, and then I thought uh, uh, we were doing so well at development. I thought, hey, let's get into construction. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Because I come from a construction background uh, growing up. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and that was the piece of the puzzle that was the most difficult to put together. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. Construction is its own uh, kind of uh, entity. And uh, and Lots of moving parts for sure. <laughs> a ton of moving parts. And originally, 
we thought we were going to be just like the typical construction company mm -hmm. where we would self-perform some parts of the of the work and uh and i learned after a while that i was not that happy running a lot of construction crews and doing a lot of initial competitive bidding sure. on uh, mm -hmm. different projects because there's a lot of risk on the construction side and you have to be careful there sure uh and so we decided to focus on becoming a construction management company mm -hmm. and so we do all the top-down construction uh stuff like uh project management we're the general contractor we do project sure. management project mm -hmm. engineering mm -hmm. project estimating and mm -hmm. we go to the superintendent level mm -hmm. and hire our own superintendents and then we competitively bid out the rest of the project which enables us to be able to move into almost any state to sure. do business so that's the model that we set and uh, my son dave got a degree in construction management and he's run our construction company for about 20 years and mm -hmm. and we've we've got a good formula now that we really like the way we we do things so awesome awesome uh so can uh help us understand like the challenges within the construction you had and what was it like that okay you wanted to uh, kind of say that oh i really don't want to get into the nitty-gritty of construction i want to you know stay like one level up just do the general uh, contractor the gc part maybe the superintendent or perhaps yes. uh, you know play that role of uh, you know engineering and developing uh, initially and just manage the yeah. construction sorts. so yeah in construction and development just talking about those two trades in particular sure mm -hmm. uh the development represents the owner. Sure. Mm -hmm. The owner has a set of criteria that's important to him. He wants to build the project at a certain price mm -hmm. and, uh, and make sure that he doesn't have any cost overruns. Sure. Mm -hmm. General contractor, on the other hand, wants to competitively bid the project and get it at the best price he can. But if there are cost overruns, he doesn't mind that because that, helps uh you know their fees uh, his profit sure uh, his absolutely line. Mm -hmm. and so we found by marrying the construction and the development side it's accomplished several different things for us uh first of all there are certain things in development that are really more attuned to the construction side mm -hmm. like when you get into cost estimating on a new project well mm -hmm. If you're a developer, you probably don't have a lot of background on cost estimating. Sure. And mm -hmm. so by having a construction company that is actively engaged in the market, we mm -hmm. and with our own estimating department, we're able to uh, come up with our pricing a lot uh, that's a lot uh, more exact. Sure. than a typical developer who's basing everything on a price per square foot type sure, sure, uh, sure. deal. So, and then the other side of that coin is uh, to make sure that your project stays in budget. There's a ton of value engineering that goes into that process. Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm 
guessing that every most of the people in that you're uh, affiliated with or involved with uh, understand the concept of value engineering. But absolutely, I, I take it as as if like you know you're playing with different materials or perhaps uh, layouts and exactly. seeing if, if if there are any differences uh, yeah. in delta you can achieve. But but go ahead, clarify that. Exactly, yeah. that's exactly what it is. It's looking at the whole scope of the construction project sure. and hmm. saying what can we do to improve the or uh, reduce the cost of the project mm -hmm. without impairing the quality of the project sure mm -hmm. and so there's a balancing act there between those two and by having a construction and a development company it gives us the opportunity to value engineer and if we find that in one aspect of the construction project we're we're having some cost overruns like uh we were building a self-storage project. Our steel went over uh, basically because you know of the China trade situation that we've got. Steel sure. went up almost twenty percent. When that went up twenty percent, well, how do you keep your costs in line? Sure. And uh, and we were able to, as a construction company to go out and become a distributor. Uh, with a, a steel manufacturer mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so we were able to cut out the middleman in that process mm -hmm. save the 20 percent keep the project in line and we find that they're always give and take in the construction and development process mm -hmm. where uh, you can save money here cost you a little bit more but you wind up getting a better quality project i believe uh and you're able to control your costs better if you've got those two entities aligned with each other. I don't know that you have to own them both, sure. but mm -hmm. you, you really should uh, team up with a general contractor that, uh, that is willing to work with you on that without charging a lot of extra fees and things on change orders and stuff so sure 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 and and change order as we all know is is pretty much the bad word in construction that's the one word that nobody wants to hear <laughs> yeah we were we were uh we were uh going to lake pal and mm -hmm. uh just having a good uh experience and we rented a we rented a a, a houseboat and spent a few days there and and I'm I'm seeing this guy pull up this really nice, almost yacht size uh, uh, boat that he had. Mm -hmm. And on the back of the boat, he had named it Change Orders. <laughs> so. We know where that came from. Then. <laughs> That's exactly. a nice one. Uh, so Ken, the initial projects, uh, were they more, uh, you know, the typical commercial uh, sh strip shopping center type projects yes. or were they self-storage or multifamily? How, how yes. was that? How, how is the business these days? Is... Uh, no, no. The, the initial projects that you were involved in, they were more the strip uh, shopping center retail type of projects. Is that uh, what, uh, what the nature of those projects was? Uh, yeah. So... Uh... Right now, we have under construction uh, and development, we have a uh, 116 unit apartment project mm -hmm. in St. George. We have a 204 unit apartment project that uh, gets its final approval tonight from the city council in nice. Mesa, Arizona. 
-hmm. So we're excited about that. But along with that, we have uh, some retail shopping there. And then we've got a, a couple uh, self-storage projects. But, but we, we do have some an, uh, value add uh, retail strip centers that we're doing right now, which we're mm -hmm. kind of excited, excited about. Mm -hmm. uh, we found a piece of property that Dollar Tree used to occupy and they're moving out. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So we were able to buy that property, add a little bit of property with it and convert it to uh, a multi-tenant building mm -hmm. and uh, increase the value of that by almost a half a million dollars by wow. uh, mm -hmm. just repositioning a, a small $1.2 million property. So it's now now valued around a million, almost a million eight. So. Sure, sure. So, so. now again, talking about different type of properties, and I, I see that, um, you know, you have a preference or a penchant for doing, uh, you know, like the new construction projects, uh, right? Yes, uh, can do. you Can you maybe uh, kind of maybe uh, give us some tidbits about uh, why you prefer that and why not just kind of go with the typical uh, value-add multifamily projects or people are doing value-add self-storage projects as well. Uh, can you maybe give us a sense of what, uh, how, sure. how that plays uh, through your uh, Absolutely. So, so we've seen over the years uh, a lot of uh, new competitors move into the multifamily space and there is uh, uh, because they're not involved in development, they're not involved in construction necessarily. Uh, they are really combing through virtually every uh, apartment building out there. And, uh, and you'll find a lot of them that are 20 years old or in that range that sure. uh, mm -hmm. have been developed. And those are what most uh, syndicators uh, like to acquire and then do some value add by fixing them up a little bit, making them look a little bit better and, and then hopefully increasing the rents to improve the value of the property sure, uh, mm -hmm. or, or to support the value that they have acquired the property at. Mm -hmm. But I, I have found, and we've done some of that, but I, I find that, uh, those older properties sometimes, uh, are a little outdated. Mm -hmm. uh, you wind up, uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, functional obsolescence. Sure. Mm -hmm. And functional obsolescence basically is most, like you, the, the home that you're living in probably has nine or 10 foot high ceilings. Sure. Well, mm -hmm. the older projects have seven and a half or eight foot high ceilings. Sure, big uh, difference. <laughs> big difference in the feel, the quality, uh, the, just the whole uh, modernization concept of of how the project is perceived, and so you can get good deals on buying a, and acquiring existing properties. But I found if you can get a brand new piece of property mm -hmm. that uh, you can get rezoned for apartments and then do the development on it, mm -hmm. you've you've created this huge value add to the deal because sure. the value of the land goes up, the value of 
the value of the entire project. Once you get it built and stabilized, goes up. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, to give you an example of that, we're uh, uh, we just put under contract a 22-acre parcel of land on the corner of McDowell and Avondale Boulevard in Avondale, Arizona, which is West Arizona. Mm -hmm. uh, but that whole area is really uh, expanding dramatically and growing. Mm -hmm. Avondale, Goodyear, uh, Surprise, Buckeye, that whole area is kind of like the new wave of where everything is going in the Arizona market. Mm -hmm. There are some other areas over in East Mesa where we're located that we really love the growth pattern going on there too. But, mm -hmm. but this piece of property that we put under contract, I was able to uh, get it at $9 a foot. Everything wow. else in the area mm -hmm. is going from 12 to $20 a foot. I so see. we'll go through the rezone process mm -hmm. and our value in the land will go from nine to $12 a foot. Mm -hmm. That's huge. Sure. Mm -hmm. Then once we build the project, it'll add, uh, we may build this 250 unit apartment project for 50 million mm -hmm. total. And, uh, and, uh, once we get it stabilized, it'll be worth 55 million. Sure. So we've added $5 million of value just by going through the development and construction project. So the same kind of concept when you're acquiring and trying to do value add just on a kind of a grander scale and the differences you kind of design out any economic obsolescence. So everything is new. Sure, you know, sure. Yeah. Now, now, in that regard, uh, what about the time factor? Like, from, like let's say from zoning to development to uh, actual construction, uh, what sort of, uh, how many years are we speaking about? Uh, you know, and, uh, and again, it, it changes by market. I, I definitely, yeah. uh, uh, you know, get it. Uh, but typically, what, what, what is if, your horizon look like? If you want to go that route, you, you better plan on uh, at least a two-year process mm -hmm. to get you from uh, the beginning of the entitlement phase through the construction and ramp up. So mm -hmm. you're you're looking at a couple-year process. And what we do with our uh, investors in our syndications is we, from day one when they come in, we give them a preferential return on their investment. Sure. With mm -hmm. the understanding that they're probably not going to be paid for a few years until the project is cash flowing. Sure. But mm -hmm. uh, but then within that five year window, which mm -hmm. is a pretty typical holding pattern, mm -hmm. we're usually in a position where they've recouped all of the preferential returns that they had to set and wait for over the first couple of years, sure. just to get to the point where we, uh, where we got the project stabilized. So. Sure, sure. So I imagine these are seasoned investors who know the, uh, how the development and construction play occurs yes. and they're okay with all the press being deferred and being paid out after maybe two, three years when, uh, yes. you know, as you said, the project cash flows. Yep, exactly. <laughs> 
now when you acquired this land can uh, what was some of the due diligence that you went through i mean taking a bet on this big of a uh, zone of land uh, yeah. requires a, a bit of feasibility study and kind of some due diligence about can we rezone this what is the best use for yeah. this plot of land can you maybe uh, maybe share with the listeners what does that uh, sort of feasibility and due diligence looks like yeah absolutely uh, just to give you an idea of what I did over the past several months is I have spent a lot of time in that market. Mm -hmm. And I, those cities that I mentioned that are sure. in West Phoenix, mm -hmm. uh, I literally drove every street, identified every piece of land that was there, mm -hmm. called every landowner that I could get and every broker that had a property that was listed for mm -hmm. sale. Mm -hmm. to try and determine exactly what was in the market. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I found in that area 55 different parcels of land. Okay. So mm -hmm. I actually I actually took every one of those, mm -hmm. looked at all of them and identified the one parcel that I thought was the best located at the best price for us. Sure. And uh, was able to get a corner parcel of land uh in avondale that's just a quarter of a mile off of the freeway and that interstate 10 that runs east and west along there has about two hundred and twenty thousand cars a day going past it wow and mm -hmm. then the two cross streets each had about twenty five thousand cars a day mm -hmm. going by and so i felt like i was getting a dominant location Mm -hmm. There were some issues that I have to deal with, like there's some power lines that I'm going to have to uh, have moved. Mm -hmm. But uh, but in talking to the city, it looked and the power company, it looked like that was a possibility to get done. And and so you have to take the good and the bad. But location, like anything else, is just absolutely critical if you're going to get the right if you're going to get the right project. Sure, sure, sure. Now, talking about some of the, uh, you know, sort of the pricing around all of this, uh, Ken, uh, when you're doing a feasibility study of, you know, let's say the land purchase and some of the development and uh, more importantly, the construction as well, um, can you maybe at a high level can give us some idea about uh, what sort of uh, price points are we talking about? Uh, you know, maybe it is, uh, let's say for construction, whether if it's per foot or, you know, going horizontal as far as uh, infrastructure, how, how do you kind of, um, uh, you know, at a high level, how we, how you sort of budget all these things? Yeah. So uh, once you come up with a, a concept design that you want, then that's when you start the pricing. And, uh, and it depends on what level of quality that you're going for. Sure. We're going for a relatively high level of quality. And so, I usually price uh, the uh, the development cost for mm -hmm. apartments at about two hundred thousand a door. Mm -hmm. uh, you can get down into the you know hundred to hundred twenty five, maybe even one hundred fifty thousand a door. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But uh, it depends on what level of quality you want to hit. Sure, and mm -hmm. uh, and we're going for that higher a little higher end market to differentiate us from mm -hmm. some of the other projects that are there. 
Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's kind of a, a rule of thumb that I go by. I, I'd be somewhere between 175 and 200,000 a door. Sure, and that's all in, I assume? That's all in. Land, okay. everything. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so, uh, yeah, so that's kind of, and, and at that, we'd be looking at rents in the neighborhood of, uh, you know, on a, on a 1,200 square foot unit of about somewhere around 1,500 a month. Sure, so sure. That's so kind I, of the, the I, range I, that we look for there. Sure. And I imagine, Ken, that uh, at that uh, price point that you're saying, this will probably be the class A type of construction. Yes, it would be. Yep, exactly. That's uh, a a minus right mm-hmm. in there. I mean, sure. you don't want to you don't want to over design the project and then not be able to not be able to get the kind of return that you want. But mm-hmm. if you're going for a little higher quality, it seems like uh, they're less susceptible to uh, to uh, you know some of the ups and downs that go on in the market. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're in some of those lower areas, sometimes those people get laid off. They sure. wind up not having enough money to pay rent, or COVID nineteen hits, then sure. you lose some occupancy that you're dealing with. So, and they're a little bit more price sensitive. Sure. If you raise your prices up, I've I've seen projects where if I if I'm in a really price sensitive market, if I raise my rents ten dollars, I lose tenants, uh, <laughs> and so you you want to be careful what you're doing there. But sure, sure, sure. Now, uh, Ken, when you started uh, this process of acquiring the land, you know, looking at uh, you know some of the possible parcels and things like that, uh, can you maybe describe? of what sort of things you are doing like is it uh you know doing a lot of like background research on who the owners are finding their numbers the broker relations and and more importantly uh, how do you assess that this land would be uh prime for the uh, multi-family development because it, it sounds like if it is you know like quarter of a mile or half a mile from freeway that yeah. would probably be more appealing for industrial warehouse type of uh uh, yes. uh you know use but can you maybe describe how do you look at these zoning issues as well yes uh well this piece of property that we acquired uh still has an agricultural zone mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. it's master planned for uh multifamily and uh and I see. commercial mm-hmm. so I see. so we know that the city already is planning on it moving in that direction i see so and you went so, off of the uh, city's master plan so that's kind of yes. your uh, uh, you know yeah, exactly. sort of the guiding rod right there yeah and another principle that we always adhere to when we're doing these syndications is once we've got our concept uh basically generally identified of of what we think might work in an area mm-hmm. and we reach out on a national basis to companies that do feasibility studies sure. that have a lot of uh, expertise in, in, in evaluating markets and evaluating properties. Mm-hmm. And we, we always get third party feasibility studies on everything we do, whether it's a self storage project, an apartment project, a retail project, because we want to know that the demand exceeds the supply 
Sure. And that's a critical aspect of being able to get in the right markets. Sure, sure. Now, knowing Arizona can, that we definitely know it's a growing, uh, you know, city and growing sub-markets uh, yeah. in, in there. Uh, can you maybe describe that? Was that kind of one of the, um, you know, driving forces that, yes, we want to be in that market? Or are there any other factors that play into this? Yeah, absolutely. We, uh uh, we're always looking for uh, being involved in growth markets. Mm -hmm. And uh, there are pockets all over the United States that uh, are growing and then others that are diminishing. It, there's a certain neighborhood cycle that goes into every prod, that goes into every neighborhood. Sure. Mm -hmm. And so you want to be in, in those growth areas uh, for several reasons. One, that, that means that uh, you're going to have the demand to fill the product that you that you just created. So sure, yeah, we 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 look extensively at uh, which markets we want to go in, and in this case, uh, uh, especially on the we're uh, as part of this overall development, we're probably going to do uh, some storage that's adjacent to the apartments. Interesting. And, uh, mm -hmm. And we reached out to a company in California and paid them to do what's called a reverse feasibility study. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. No, I, no, I, I haven't. If you can enlighten us, that'd be great. <laughs> well, usually a feasibility study is you acquire a piece of property, you decide what you want to build. Then you go to a, a firm that does these studies, sure. these demand studies, market studies. And, and ask them to do a market study validating what you've just done. Sure. Mm -hmm. Well, a reverse feasibility study is you pay somebody to come in and tell you the markets that you should be in. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so we paid a company $10,000 to tell us which markets we should be looking at. Mm -hmm. And of the five markets that they identified for us, this Goodyear Avondale market was was one that they said uh, you ought to seriously look at because demand there exceeds the supply. Incredible. So that's mm -hmm. part of why we went in there. I see. And you have maybe perhaps a two-year, three-year runway before, uh, so you are kind of ahead of that cycle. Would you would you say that? Yes. Yeah. That's that's what it's going to take to to get to that point. So sure, sure. Uh, now, speaking of, um, you know, I'm sure the opportunity zones and all these factors come into play when you're looking at all of this. Can you maybe share your thoughts on, um, you know, uh, if you are targeting uh, your, um, uh, you know, projects to be in opportunity zones or what are your thoughts about them? Yeah, so uh, when they come out in, in 2018, we all were excited about opportunity zones and creating our own opportunity funds and opportunity zone funds. And, and so we looked pretty extensively at that. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the opportunity zones are clearly in distressed neighborhoods. Sure. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why they were designed and, and uh, that's the word opportunity. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, and so, uh, I wrote an article not long after I'd done a bunch of research on this and, and said uh, opportunity zones may not be the opportunity everybody is expecting 
Sure. Uh, mm -hmm. It's kind of a buzzword. Everybody gets excited about it, but sure. But I'm I'm uh, I'm I'm probably not the expert you'd want to talk to when you sure. when mm -hmm. you're talking about opportunity zones. But but I have found that in several instances when I've looked at different parcels uh, that were located in opportunity zones, uh, there were reasons why it would be difficult to develop sure and mm -hmm. getting a tax benefit didn't justify building in a market where supply and demand where demand didn't exceed supply Thank so mm -hmm. so i have taken the position that i'm going to find the absolute best locations i can find and in those locations you generally have to pay close to market rate it's pretty hard to find one and get a a, a price that's less than market because everybody knows that that's a good location sure but mm -hmm. uh but and then if it happens to be in a opportunity zone great if it doesn't i'm fine with that mm -hmm. and i know that my economics work regardless of that factor mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. so and so over the course of the last couple of years I have yet to find one that's uh, a parcel of land located in an opportunity zone that supports the the returns that we try to to achieve for our investors, and we we try to be in the anywhere from uh, fifteen to twenty plus uh, return on investment. So. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at relatively high returns now. If you wanted lower returns, you could probably find more properties in those areas. So sure, sure, sure. And and there's something to be said about. I mean, you're taking a, a high risk, high reward uh, sort of avenue where you know you're you know acquiring raw and going through the zoning development, right. you know, engineering and construction and everything. Right. So obviously the reward has to be high as well. Uh, now, yeah. speaking of uh, your in-depth experience, uh, Ken, I want to know your thoughts about uh, the current pandemic and what it entails for, um, you know, sort of the main street or even perhaps the businesses in general. Uh, as, uh, you know, experienced and veteran as you are, Ken, yeah. uh, you have gone through several cycles, uh, you know, like 80s, mid 80s, you had nineties uh, and then we obviously we had the O one though yeah. uh, uh, obviously two thousand eight nine has not yeah. been forgotten by anybody. Uh, can you share uh, the pandemic that we are going through? Yeah. Uh, I mean, feels like we are sure. in a much much deeper hole at this point. Could you maybe give your thoughts on how you are looking at your outlook? Well, Sakar, I I've been through seven of these cycles. Wow, <laughs> in my career. Sure. Uh, the two big ones are have, were in the 80s hmm. uh, when they had the Resolution Trust Corporation. All of the savings and loans, or most of the savings and loans, went out of business. And, sure. And that was a, a huge situation. Sure. That was the 85, 86 savings loans crisis. Exactly. Got it. And hmm. then, and then I've been through the 2008 to 2012, and and I learned a few things going through those through those uh, cycles. But uh, I know there's been this freak out on COVID-19 and we're all wearing face masks. I probably should have worn one today, sorry. But, 
but you know where where we're where we're concerned and uh and i'm in that i'm in that profile category in my age where i should be concerned about that stuff sure and so we're all being careful with that but i'm noticing this is going through a similar pattern as to what we've been through in other pandemics with SARS and stuff like that, sure. uh, where we didn't get as restrictive and we didn't shut down the economy. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I am watching, you know, even though there's been an escalation of cases, mm-hmm. there's been a decline in the number of deaths that have been occurring, the mortality rates sure. steadily been going down. Mm-hmm. So I think, we're going to be uh, another three or four, or maybe even the rest of this year, going through this cycle mm-hmm. before people gain the confidence that, okay, the market is okay, life is all right, we're going to be okay going and socializing again and mm-hmm. putting our children in school. So I think we've still got to work through this, mm-hmm. but I honestly feel that when we come out of this, we're going to be close to where we were before. Mm-hmm. There are some markets, there are some property types that are really going to go through, that's really gone through a, a transition here. Hotels, sure, mm-hmm. entertainment, anything in the hospitality or entertainment business got killed. Absolutely. And so I think there's, a, and I've said this a few times, but, I think there's an opportunity maybe to uh, acquire some existing hotels. The cap rates on those things are uh, north of 12%, which is pretty amazing. Sure. Uh, If you can acquire something at those high cap rates, that means you're getting very good values uh, for your investment dollars. And so we'll see, but I mean, I mean, I think, uh, I think we can just plan on the next three, four, five, six months dealing with what we've got going on. And then I think there's going to be a level of optimism come back in the market that people are going to say, okay, we're confident that we're all right and we're going to move forward. So, and that there may be some that are lengthening that out another year beyond that, but I, I don't, I personally don't see that. I see. Good, good. Thank you. Uh, Ken, now a couple of last questions. Um, Give us your best advice for newer syndicators starting out. Uh, There's a lot of interest to do, like, let's say, multifamily self-storage projects. Uh, And as, uh, you know, as experienced as you are, um, can you maybe share some uh, bits of uh, your advice about uh, for newer syndicators who may be listening? Uh, yeah, I can. Uh, first of all, I think if you're a new syndicator and you're trying to put together a group of investors to come into a, a project, uh, don't get too greedy. Uh, you, your, uh, your investors are really the most important thing that you've got. Sure. Mm-hmm. And you want to treat those people with respect and you want to do your absolute best for them so you got to be careful not to uh try and make it 
you don't want to get to a point where you feel like, hey, I can retire on this one project. <laughs> so so uh, I think there has to be a really good balance there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in terms of uh, the fees that are charged and the percentage splits, another thing that I would suggest with uh, new syndicators is uh, don't overpromise. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've all heard the adage uh, uh, under promise and over deliver. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as a seasoned veteran as I am, that's always a balancing act. Sure. And I'm mm-hmm. trying to always be careful of that, but still I miss the mark at times, but, mm-hmm. but, uh, but uh, don't create expectations that three years from now you can't live up to. Sure. And sure. so you have to be careful on, on that. And so that means uh, the acquisitions that you do, you got to be very careful on the cap rates that you're willing to accept and, uh, and your target rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, I think those are probably the biggest things. And then, and then the other thing, if you're in the syndication business, you're also in the securities business. Sure. And, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, you want to make sure that you're doing everything by the book. You want your due diligence done properly and mm-hmm. documented. You want to make sure that you hire a good securities attorney. Mm-hmm. That uh, and and by the way, you don't have to overpay those guys. There are some securities attorneys that I've that I when I first got in the business were saying, "Yeah, we'll do this fifty thousand dollar number." <laughs> yeah, uh, but you can you can do these for for much eight, less ten thousand sure. dollars much mm-hmm. less. You do have to pay a fee. Sure. But mm-hmm. if you get a good securities attorney, that will go a long way. I uh, one of my one of my good buddies is uh, uh, the runs the enforcement division for the SEC. Wow. <laughs> uh, in our area. Sure. Okay. And so. <laughs> I sat down with him one day and I said, okay, uh, what do I need to do to make sure that I'm, I'm doing, I'm a good syndicator and you're not knocking at my door one day saying, uh, you really screwed up and, and now we're going to, now we're going to talk about criminal charges. And so, uh, and so he said, the number one thing that you can do is create a private placement memorandum full disclosure where you just document everything that you're doing and you're disclosing everything and they understand the risks and the potential risks that are associated with the project. And if you do that, then you're mm-hmm. you're going to be protected. And then, and then be careful uh, whether you're doing a 506 B or C offering uh, that you're going by the book. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, great, great advice. Great advice. Uh, Thank you, uh, Ken. It's, it is a sheer pleasure. Uh, Thank you for coming on. Uh, There's so much knowledge. I feel that uh, the time is not enough for one episode. So (laughs) I I definitely would look forward to perhaps uh, having you on another podcast, given your, uh, you know, busy schedule. so uh, please share with the listeners how they can, uh, you know, find you and learn more about your company. Oh, sure. Happy to do that. 
the name's Ken Holman, H-O-L-M-A-N. Our company is Overland Group, Inc.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Overland Group, but we have several subsidiaries in that, Overland sure. Development, Overland Capital, Overland Construction. So, uh, But uh, you can reach me at uh, the email, K-H-O-L-M-A-N, at overlandcorp.com. My cell phone number is 801-231-6650. Nobody gives out their cell phone numbers, but I do. I I appreciate it. I'm sure you'll be hearing hearing for more listeners. (laughs) Yeah, you're happy to call me. I mean, I'm happy to listen to anything you've got to say. If you're a new syndicator and you're looking for some advice, uh, I don't mind sharing. That's what the business is all about. So, thank thank you for being so grateful and so gracious to uh, come on, uh, Ken, and share your advice and experience. Uh, you know, it is an honor, uh, and I will be definitely uh, you know looking forward for a, another episode with you. So, uh, with another well, uh, you know great advice from yeah, you for thanks sure. Thanks for the opportunity. <laughs> and hey, the next deal we do, we'd we'd love to have you as a partner. So. Absolutely. Absolutely. We are on board for sure. Thank you for coming on. (laughs) Thank you. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Premium Cashflow Real Estate Investing Podcast. Please join us at premiumcashflow.com to sign up for weekly updates, research articles, and more. We will see you again for another great interview with an expert guest.